Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at thegoldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Today's guest is Josh Patrick from Burlington, Vermont. Josh is a serial entrepreneur who's been obsessed with what makes a business personally and economically successful. He spent 40 years reading, actively running, and helping others create businesses that are fun to run and economically rewarding. Josh runs a company called Stage 2 Planning Partners and also sustainable business. And Jack and I, I think our kindred spirits shares a lot of very interesting uh, lessons to teach blue collar entrepreneurs. Uh, That's his primary client base as it is mine. So I think uh, talking about stuff that's gonna be useful to the subcontractors and trades, this is gonna be a great episode. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having, thanks for being on my show today, Josh. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's, this is going to be a lot of fun. All right. So uh, so we're going to just like cue this up. So these are a few subjects we're going to be talking about today. One is um, we're going to talk about how to set up a bonus program using the concepts of open book management, a subject that is uh, near and dear to my heart and uh, something you were doing with clients uh, years before Jack Stack, I guess, put together his great game of business. Uh, We're going to talk also about how to use Scrum, which is a tool that most companies would use. uh, I call it a tool. Let's call it a a process that that companies in the technology or software development space would use. So how can blue collar companies use Scrum for project management? Um, We're going to talk about other interesting topics like maybe cash flow, things like that. So. Where do we start today, my friend? <laughs> Let's go with cash flow and my stupid saying about it. Okay. I, I used to be in the food service and vending business, which had a really, really low profit margin. Mm-hmm. Two, three, a good year was 5%. 2% or 3% was average. And there were many years that we had negative cash flow because we were growing too fast. And I didn't realize that growth is cash the way it did. So I developed a stupid saying. It is happiness is positive cash flow. Right, right. And it still is my mantra today. 
Yeah, well, and so for those who don't understand that growth sucks cash, as we say, um, and, and not in a pejorative met meaning, but that as you're growing, um, especially if you're an inventory business, right, you're accumulating inventory, your accounts receivable, uh, payable can get bigger, your cash can get smaller, your investments in capital expenditures can get larger, and you can literally grow yourself out of business. Um, before you grow out of your space and before you grow out of the talent that you have, perhaps even. I, I did it three times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I also had a $300,000 embezzlement in 1979 that went along with it. So, Oh, wow. That must've been really painful. That was a, that was a learning experience. I learned that there are essentially no rules with your suppliers when you're up against the wall. Wow. The bank, the bank had canceled me. Yep. My suppliers, I was at 120, 90 days with all my suppliers. So we went back and we said, here's your choice. You can force me into bankruptcy or we can term out what I owe you. I'll pay you over two years and it will go COD until you're paid off. Yeah. Well, that's great if you can do that. And uh, that's probably their best option because how are they going to get paid back otherwise? It was so. the best option. They didn't like it, but they yeah. really, you know, they felt they didn't have a choice. Yeah. And as it turned out, it worked out well in the long run for us. Yeah. So, so why do companies get into, let's talk about a few things um, that happen that get companies into that place where they don't see the train wreck that's a mile down the road, you know, where they're going to run into cash flow problems. What are some of your thoughts on it? It's really pretty simple. And I've always said to people say, when you go to France, what language do you speak? (laughs) French. Right. When you're in business, what language should you speak? Business. Finance. Right. How many people in business that you know who have started their own businesses and essentially come out of the trades, which is what happens with subcontractors, yep. they're not trained in business. Even if they are trained in business, if you get an MBA, they don't teach you about you're going to run out of money if you grow too fast because they're trained to work for Fortune 1000 companies where they never run out of company business right. or they're using large company finance stuff. And it's all really around small company stuff. And um, unfortunately, I put this problem at the feet of the the accounting profession. Mm -hmm. Uh, CPAs really know that their clients can't read a cash flow statement. And for the most part, they never bother mentioning the cash flow statement because I don't want to explain it. In fact, I'm kind of convinced that many CPAs don't understand a cash flow statement. Yeah, you know, I I think actually uh, I was listening to a podcast by Greg Crabtree, who wrote a book that I refer to many people called Simple Numbers, Big Profits. I mean, because he's got some really unique ideas about what CPA should and shouldn't be doing. And he falls the CPA industry pretty heavily for um, making the client work for them versus them working for the client. And clients need to understand things like cash flow and need to understand their, their P&L. It, it shouldn't be uh, obscured by the whatever is needed by the CPA. People need to understand management cost accounting almost more than any other area. You know, financial accounting is important as well for tax and dividend and distribution purposes. But it's crazy that they don't understand how to manage their business 
using the financial information that's being provided to them. The CPAs should not just be historians. They should be actively involved in the you know, future and determining the future of the business. Well, the question comes in, do they have the ability to do so? Right. Um, the managing partner does because the managing partner is running the business. Yep. But not many people who own a business work with the managing partner. And they're working with someone who's an employee and that person has an employee mentality. They don't even understand what they're doing. I mean, they know how they're compliance people. Their job is to put together tax returns and financial statements. That's a compliance activity. Yep. It's a tactical activity. It's not a strategic activity. Managing cash flow is strategic. Totally. And, you know, what I find is a, a big challenge for blue collar entrepreneurs and, and businesses in general is finding the right financial talent to work inside their company. They don't oftentimes know, do I need a controller? Do I need a finance manager? Do I need a... Um, so I just get an AP and AR clerk so I can get more throughput or do I need a CFO? I mean, what is a CFO? It's, it's pretty crazy that they don't really know this stuff. And what makes it more difficult is they don't even know how to look, how to vet the person that they're looking at to know what their real level of acumen or skills are. So it becomes even more complicated. Well, that's likely because they don't have a hiring system. Yeah. And the truth is, when you're hiring an outside advisor for, for most construction companies, subcontractors, until they get to over 50, maybe even $100 million, they don't need a CFO internally. Correct. You should use a fractional CFO. Yep. And you can hire fractional CFOs for, with all sorts of different skill sets along the way. But when you hire an advisor, you should use the exact same methodology that you use for hiring an employee that's out there swinging a hammer for you. Mm -hmm. And the truth is most people who hire, hire in a knee-jerk manner. They say, I need this. And they look for the first warm body that fits into this, whatever this is. Yep. Uh, and when it comes to a professional, they don't even know what they're looking for. They don't know what they need. Well, I think, I mean, I'm a big fan of the top grading and who methodology systems that uh, Brad and Jeff Smart developed when they were over at GE. Um, but many small businesses find those systems to be too cumbersome. And well, so they just, you know, challenge. it has to be simple. Yeah, I know. Um, but I think one of the biggest frustrations I still feel is that they don't know how to, um, evaluate the talent in terms of whether what they really know, because they're not savvy enough in the finance area to know, does this person know the things that they don't know? And I feel like that's one of the jobs that the CPA ought to provide to their clients, which is to evaluate the talent. Um, but if, you know, part of it is a mindset, like you said. So if you're using a, a tax or a, um, you know, a compliance staff member uh, who does audit work to help you evaluate talent, you're probably not getting the right person. You need a managing partner type person or and someone who knows technically the, the accounting work to help evaluate that person. Or even better yet, hire a fractional CFO. <clears throat> yeah. So what at what size company do you think a fractional CFO makes sense? Are we thinking, are you thinking 5 million, 10 million more dependent upon 
the nature about, of the business. How about one million? One million. Okay. You like yeah. that, that level, really? Yeah. I mean, essentially, you're hiring a fractional CFO. They come in for three hours a month. Right. The one million. Right. And at and 10, five at or 10 million. million probably a day and a half a, a week or a day a week. Yep. Um, if that. Yeah. I mean, the truth is a good CFO doesn't do, doesn't assemble financial statements. Of course. They interpret the financial statements. Of course. I can take a pretty complicated financial statement and in less than 45 minutes tell you everything that's going on in the company. So it doesn't take a long time for someone to be a fractional CFO and provide a whole lot of value. Yes. If they charge $2,000 a month or $2,500 a month and they spend one hour a month. So what? You're getting a ton of value. I mean, if you want to hire that person who's charging you that, mm-hmm. it would be a quarter of a million dollars. 100% agree. Josh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that all of this underscores the need for entrepreneurs to have some financial literacy. There's just, there's not enough financial literacy. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't mean you have to take an accounting class, but you need to understand what your people are doing so you can understand maybe where they're messing up. You need to be able to understand a balance sheet, a cash flow, a PL statement, be able to read them, interpret them, and make some informed decisions or, or predictions around the future based on you know what's happening to your margins and things like that. I mean, I'm sure you agree with me on this. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I, you know, it really, it, there's only something else they need to do is they need to have a good working dashboard. Yes. And the dashboard basically should not be historical. It should be predictive. Right. Now, there are some historical things I put on dashboards. I do put accounts payable on dashboards. Sure. I do put accounts receivable on dashboards. I put accounts receivable over 90 days. But I also put how many calls are the sales folks making? Yes. How many inquiries are we getting off the web? How many proposals are we going out? What's our ratio of closing to proposals that we put out? What's our backlog? Those are the things that are going to tell me what's going to happen with my business 30, 60, 90 days down the road. So I have a chance to correct it if it starts falling out of place. Yeah. I like the analogy of uh, if you've ever watched a, a baseball game today, the, the scoreboard um, is basically sort of the lagging indicators. It's tell, it tells you what's happened so far in the game. And if your scoreboard would even show you the standings in the league, it would show you like their balance sheet over time. Um, what you see that the TV announcers are putting up on the screen, you know, what's how many times does this guy get a, a runner, a run with someone with people in scoring position? What's their, I think it's like runners in scoring positions average. What's, I mean, those are sort of leading indicators. You need to have a mix of leading and lagging indicators. And if your bias is towards too much one or the other, then you're not seeing the whole picture. So. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy. I like that one. It makes sense. Unless I have someone who's not interested in baseball, they have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) That would be me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we use a scorecard in our uh, weekly meetings with my clients and they are all leading indicators, but we have a a one page strategic plan, you know, which has quarterly outcomes that we're seeking. And those are what I would call the, the, 
you know, the, the, the result, but you need the lagging indicators in the scorecard as well. And the, and the ones you gave, I think are really good ones. Um, yeah. I, I like also the measuring either labor efficiency ratio or labor variance. Yeah, we call that efficiency. You know, if you're paying somebody for 40 hours, how much are they actually working? Yep. So, uh, we want to, we want to see in the subcontractor world, at least, the labor component of the job to be three times what the labor cost is. Right. I really want four, but I'll accept three. I agree. That's And that's true of any service business model, folks. So if you're running a consulting firm, an accounting firm, uh, uh, a law firm, like that three or four to one, um, that is, you know, revenue received for payment. And you could probably fully burden that payment to uh, your labor, that's a good ratio. Um, yeah, it's an easy one. People, you know, again, my goal when I work with people is to be simple. Yep. It's one of my core values. We take the complicated and make it simple. That's what simplification <laughs> means for us. And the my challenge with MBA programs, I have lots of challenges, but one of my biggest <laughs> challenges <laughs> they take so, the simple, they take the simple and make it complicated. They yeah, do the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Now I've learned some pretty complicated things in business school. And to dumb it down for small businesses, it took a number of years. Well, every time we hired an MBA, it would take us two years or three years to disabuse them of all the stuff they learned in school and how to actually be practical in running a business. Well, I think that MBAs are trained for you know, corporate America, and I don't mean the small business and middle market corporate America, they're trained for the really fortune 1000 companies. Um, And they're taught very uh, specialized skills in marketing or finance or, you know, which are not, you know, it's not very useful in small and medium sized companies. You can, you can, um, you know, use some of that stuff. You have to adopt it, but the truth is, if you use simple systems, they're going to be adopted. They're going to be used. Yep. Yep. You mentioned you do a one a one page quarterly plan. Yes. If you had any more than one pages, no one would ever look at it. One page sits <laughs> getting, on the owner's desk. They look at it every day because it lives there. Yeah. Getting people to look at the one page plan that they did just a few weeks ago sometimes is a challenge, Josh. They they come back into the next quarterly planning and like, oh wow, how did we do? But so I built in some accountability where you're forced to kind of look at it because by building those scorecard metrics and by creating what we call rocks, which are, you know, the things that we're going to get done this quarter. Um, Let's just get back to the one more thing though, about labor. I I talked about labor efficiency or labor variance. So a lot of our clients are running projects and it's not about the, I mean, it's important to look at their utilization rate and, and uh, if you can measure effective billing rate and, you know, that that's basically like how many hours, were the 80% utilized? Were they doing too much admin stuff? Was it better than 80%? I mean, but a lot of times these guys are bidding projects. Let's just say they're constructing a home or a backyard and they think it's going to take, you know, one particular phase or ticket or air work area is going to take 10 hours and it takes 25. And they're late, went way over on labor or, or sometimes worse, they'll go over on material costs as well. I mean, these are big challenges that need to be measured. You need to be measuring that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the truth is, if you're doing fixed price jobs, which is what a property job is. Yeah. First of all, that's the only way you should ever work. 
And second of all, if you can't estimate within 10% how much time it's actually going to take 90% of the time, mm -hmm. you better get out of business fast because you're well, going to get killed. Yeah, or you will go out of business fast because you don't know how to include yeah. your, you know, how to recover your overhead costs and, and a profit. So, so the way we teach people to, to price their jobs and we'll talk about Scrum a little bit later, where we want to really redo how that whole process is. Mm -hmm. Listen, it's a traditional subcontractor. And they think it's going to take uh, 100 hours to do a job. Mm -hmm. I tell them to bid the job with 120 to 130 hours. Mm -hmm. And their goal is to do it in 80 hours. Wow. That's great. Now, if That's they do that and they consistently do it 90% of the time, mm -hmm. That one job that goes over by 50 or 75 hours is a learning opportunity. It's not a disaster. Good point. Good point. So, Disasters are what set these guys out of business when, especially I've seen clients that are really good at doing jobs in the, I mean, this I'm thinking years ago, they'd be good at doing jobs in the five to 25 and they'd get up to 40,000. Suddenly they'd get a hundred thousand to $150,000 job and they completely blow it. And yeah. so all the good work they did on the five to $40,000 jobs gets completely wiped out by a loss on the $125,000 job. Well, it's sort of, they're, they're taking a big risk. I mean, again, those who stay in business for a really long time are not risk takers. They're actually risk adverse. They manage risk really well. Mm-hmm. And if I have a business doing a half a million dollars and I take a $150,000 job on, that's taking a big risk. Mm -hmm. I would tell that owner, you really should probably pass on that job. Or if you really want to do that job, make sure you bid it for hours and materials, not for project yeah. cost. Yeah, I love that. I love your idea of, uh, you know, over, I mean, some people would say, Josh, I'm never going to win that bid if you if I go over, you know, if I bid it at 120, 100, you know, percent or, you know, over, I'm going to lose to the lower price bidder. What do you say? I said, well, you will lose some and you'll win some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like you know, that. The, the, the truth is we don't test pricing elasticity very well. Correct. Business owners. I would say, unless you're hearing no because of price, 20% of the time, you're too cheap. I was just my next question, which is what percent of the time would you like to have them hear no to know that you're not underselling yourself? And you say 20%. Yeah, I say about 20% of the time. Yeah. But it, you know, some people are uncomfortable at that level. And I say, okay, go to 10%. Wow. Well, I think so some you people... Hearing, you need to be hearing no on a not irregular basis otherwise you're too cheap right but what about in a competitive bid situation where you're a subcontractor to a, a general and they're taking five or ten bids in a very crowded environment like today um well today 
<laughs> they may be taking 10 or 15, 10, 10 bids, but only one of them can actually do the work in the time they need it. So right, right. <laughs> under normal circumstances, when they, you know, when you're in a normal economy where they say, oh, there's 10 bids, mm-hmm. I tell people to stay away from that. They should be working to do design build type stuff. Yeah. Where it's a negotiated price and not a bid price. If you get into a bid, it's about it's a it's a race to the bottom. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I find that my better clients have a diverse portfolio where they have some design uh, build, some bid build, and and then some maintenance work as well. So they've got a good diversified portfolio. You're not going to win all of it, but you have to manage it. They're, each of them is like a different business. So yeah, you have to manage it. Yeah. You know, yeah. my daughter works for a really large uh, Irish construction company that works in the bio and high tech world. Mm-hmm. They build chip, chip plants and biotech facilities. Mm. And they went, they just won a, a billion dollar contract. They were not the low bid, mm-hmm. not close, but they could do the work the way it needed to be done. So if you're going to be premium priced, you better be premium service to go along with it. Totally agree. And I think I don't want to go down this tangent, but I just want to make a point. Let's you can you can uh, add to it. So important to understand um, who your ideal client profile is one, and that should line up with what your core competencies are. And and so important to have an alignment between those two. And too many companies probably just don't have clarity about who their core customer is. And yeah. what their core companies or strengths are. Yeah, no, that's uh, and that's something you know. Uh, my belief is, and this is a question I always ask, and this is why is it the best performers, the best singers, the best athletes, the best actors, all have not one coach but several coaches working for them to help them to get better at what they do. And they're already at the top of the game. They're already the best in the world. Right. They get coaches. Business owners think coaches are for wimps. <laughs> I'm hoping that's changed by now, but. Uh, it's a pretty small percentage that ever hire a yeah, coach. Yeah, that's probably true. All right. Let's talk about this scrum concept because this is really novel. Scrum sounds like something your daughter would be using in project development, plant development in her work. How do contractors, what is it and how do contractors use it? Well, essentially, Scrum is one of the many process improvement technologies that live out there. Uh, If you go back to the way projects were done 15 years ago, it was a method called waterfall. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas you may have heard of a project in Boston called the Big Dig. And the Big Dig was this gigantic roads project where they rebuilt the roads around Boston to supposedly make it more efficient to move around the city. Mm -hmm. The cost overruns were in the billions of dollars. And the reason they were in the billions of dollars was they planned the whole project out at one time. And as soon as one piece went out, the whole project was off kilter. Now, you may remember software used to be developed where they would make a release once a year. And typically, the release never worked right. It was months late, if not years late. 
Correct. Just because they were using a waterfall method, they were writing all the specs for the software before they started to write it. Mm-hmm. And then they would go through and follow it. And when something was late and something's always late, instead of just taking that little piece and fix it, they had to redo the entire chart. Right. Now, Scrum is we're going to take our process and we're going to put everything we need to do. And we're going to list it all out, all the pieces that have to be done. And we're going to put it in a backlog. Mm-hmm. And every week, two or three weeks, we're going to have to get together and we're going to do a planning session mm-hmm. about what is it that we can do over the next two weeks. And we put that into this. We're going to work on this. And we put a point level on each of those things. And over time, we're going to figure out, well, this is really a one-point activity, and this is a seven-point activity, and this is a 13-point activity. And we know how many points that we can get done in a particular, this called a sprint, the mm-hmm. one, two, or three times. Mm-hmm. At the end of that period, we're going to have produced a product. It might be we've put in five doors in the house or 12 windows or we've put roofs, we've roofed half the house or the whole house. But what we're doing is we're sitting down and we're playing the job before we start it. That means we're not going to have people hanging around doing stuff. And every morning for five minutes, we have a five-minute stand-up meeting. It could be done on your phone. It could be done on person. It could be done on Zoom. And we sit there and say, okay, are we on track here? Or are we off track? And if we're off track, let me know. And we're going to figure out how to get back on track. Or we're going to use this as a learning experience in our retrospective. Because after the, the sprint is over with, we have what's called a retrospective. We look back at the last one, two, or three weeks, and we say, what went well? And we want to build on that. It's called appreciative inquiry. Mm-hmm. Positive psychology. What went wrong? Mm-hmm. How can we make sure it didn't go wrong? And how can we make sure it doesn't go wrong again? And how can we improve it if we want? Or is it just something we need to manage? Now, if I do this over and over and over, I'm going to be taking waste out of the process. Mm-hmm. The process really comes down to W. Edwards Denling was the, the father of quality control. In 1937, he taught the American manufacturers how to build an unbelievable military machine that produced all the goods and equipment for World War II. For some reason, after World War II, American manufacturing was done with Deming. He's a pretty tough guy to get along with, so I could understand that. Right. He went to Japan and Toyota hired him to teach them what he taught the American people, which ended up becoming the Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, no lean manufacturing. That's really a, a derivative of Deming. Yep. Scrum is a different derivative of Deming's work. Mm. Laya Goldratt, who wrote a book called The Goal, which is the theory of constraints, is another derivative of Deming. And in a small company, the only two things you should ever look at is either Scrum or the theory of constraints. Mm-hmm. All the other stuff is way too complicated, has too much, many moving pieces. Mm-hmm. Scrum is simple. Now, Remember we, we talked about saying you should bid 120% of the hours you think that you're going to use on a job? Yes. Okay, well, after using Scrum for six months of a year, I'm going to take that 100 hours and I'm going to make it 60 hours. I'm going to reduce the labor by 40%, almost guaranteed. Wow. 
How are you going to do that? Just by doing the you know, wash, rinse, and repeat. Gotcha. You, you, you go through, you do the planning session, you do the points, you have the daily huddle, mm-hmm. you have your retrospective, you go back and you do it again. Mm-hmm. And by doing it over and over and over, you're going to start finding ways to decrease the amount of work you put in or find different methodologies. Let me give you, I'll give you an example. I'm going to use my vending company as an example for this. Okay. I own the food service and vending company. You've seen those glass front snack machines that have candies and chips and all that sort of stuff in there. Yep. Well, our thinking in 1984, 85 was our customers want variety. So we would put one row in each of those machines of the 40 rows and our guys would have to go back and they would put in about $45, $50 for the merchandise every time they opened the machine door, which was not especially productive. Mm-hmm. And when they went there, they would always be out of the three or four or five most popular items. Mm-hmm. One day I was talking with a customer who was a grocery customer that was the Hannaford's chain. And he said, I don't get you guys. Why is it you're always out of the good stuff and you only have crummy crap in your machines? And he went on for a whole bunch of logs. But we started thinking about that and saying, hmm, why don't and at that time we had 125 separate items in our warehouse for those candy and snack machines? That's a lot of inventory. Yeah, definitely. So we said, okay, why don't we double row the top five sellers? So that allowed us to go from 125 items in the warehouse down to about 90 items in the warehouse. To make right. a very long story short, we kept iterating and iterating and iterating. Eventually, we went down to 14 items in the snack machine. They were the 14 best sellers we ever had. And we would rotate three of them on a seasonal basis, so it wouldn't be the same 14. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, if you're a Snickers eater, when you go to a snack machine, what do you want? If there's not Snickers there, you're walking away. Right. But if there are Snickers there, you're going to buy it. Snickers buyers don't buy butternut. They buy Snickers. M&M buyers don't buy Hershey bars. They buy M&Ms. So by having the best stuff in there, two things happen. Actually, three things happen, which was a, a way to really annoy my competitors with this third thing. But the first thing was we went from an average of $45 a service to $145 a service. And we went from having 125 items in our warehouse to 25 items in the warehouse. Wow. Huge, huge savings in inventory. Mm. Now, that was an iterative process that we used that was specifically built around Deming's 14 points. Interesting. So how do you teach this Scrum methodology? And and maybe a second question is, I, I had a client that was in the software business and the project manager and the lead uh, architect, developer, I'm not sure what his title was, they seem to always be at war. And I was having to facilitate. Uh, one says the, the other one's using more of a waterfall, project management mindset, and uh, we're more scrum and we can't. And, they, and then they would be going back and forth saying, no, I, I use scrum. I understand scrum. I understand waterfall. And they were in such conflict. How do you teach this stuff to people? Well, first of all, the, the conflict is one issue and then teaching is another issue. Yes. The teaching is simple. Scrum essentially has five pieces to it. Mm-hmm. And you just teach the five pieces. Now, we introduce one piece at a time. Right. We don't introduce all five pieces at a time. And we do it with a small, we, we have a small experiment, so you have proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Just because I say something doesn't mean it's right. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the way I, I started going down this road, I had an electrical contractor for a client probably 20 years ago. And this was before I learned about, I don't think Scrum existed 20 years ago, actually. And this was, you know, he had a 20% bottom line. And you know, in the subcontracting world, you have a 20% bottom line. That's a huge bottom line. <laughs> Absolutely. So I said to him, I said, Brian, why is your bottom line so good? And he says, it's really simple. Before we go out on the job, Everybody comes in, looks at the blueprints, plans the job, orders all the material, so nobody's standing around once we get out and do the work. We spend mm -hmm. a day in-house planning for what we're going to do for the next week mm -hmm. on this job. Mm -hmm. That made him much more efficient than his people. Now, when he went out and he bid a job, he would bid a job pretty much in the same price range as everybody else. But he had that secret of working so much more effectively because of pre-planning. So as a result, he had taken a huge amount of labor out of the cost of doing the work, but he kept it in his pocket and didn't, didn't give it to the owner of the building. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. It's, this is a really hard thing to teach people and you can put incentives in place and tell well, it's them. It's actually to, really easy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the truth is you have to commit mm -hmm. and all change is hard. And the thing with change is that you do it in small pieces. Right. If I ask you to make a great big change, you're not going to do it. You're not even going to consider it. Correct. If I make, if I ask you to say, okay, let's just take our big jobs and let's try this with one big job. Mm -hmm. Pretty easy to do. Yeah, I understand the concept for sure. Um, and by the way, I, I really loved that book, uh, Eliyahu Goldratt's The Goal. Um, yeah. But and, and I understand it may be one of the best selling business books of all time. But I, I think it's basically one of the best selling stories of all time about a business. I, I don't know how you read that book and then apply the theory of constraints into your business to figure out where the bottlenecks are. I mean, I think it's. The book for it's, me it's was really, more about really, a mindset. It's really pretty easy. Mm -hmm. I, I tell people, I say, think whack-a-mole. Okay. What's whack-a-mole? Whack-a-mole, you know, the little moles pull up, you yeah. have a mountain, you bang it. Yeah. Then another one pops up and you bang that one. Right. Another one pops up and you bang that one. Right. Well, that's what the theory of constraints is, is whack-a-mole for business. Right. But it's it's applying it. It's, there's no there there wasn't a tool as a takeaway that would I could hand someone that would change their way of thinking. But I think the book itself changed their way of thinking. It's a great yeah. story. Really, yeah, good story. actually, uh, I use the same methodology for the books I write. I've written two books. They're both business parables. Mm. I you know Goldrad and Lencioni. But, Steve Farber are my heroes when it comes to writing business books. Of course, because who wants to read a business book? They're boring for the most part. Lencioni always makes them interesting, and certainly Goldratt did too. All right, um, so you're pretty big on structuring uh, bonus compensations. I, I really believe that if all work could be paid on a variable basis, then all companies could theoretically be profitable and everyone would share uh, in that. But of course, we live in a society where people want to be guaranteed uh, work for the hours and time that they put in. And, you know, I understand that it's, a, it's generally the 
It's the mass paradigm. But the more we can move to variable base pay, um, I'm sorry, variable compensation pay, um, probably the fairer it is for everyone. The entrepreneur would still take uh, his or her lion's share of the risk and putting up their own capital and and committing to uh, you know a building and et cetera. But how? What are some of your thoughts on how to structure a good compensation program in, in the uh, trades? Um, my goal is to always have people working in companies I'm associated with get paid at the ninety percentile level. Mm-hmm. They have to earn it. Yes. So what we do is we structure a deal, or this way, if I have my druthers and can do everything I want, we're going to structure everybody to be average pay. That's what their pay is. Their their hourly pay is average. Their salary pay is average. And they get more money if the company is successful. Now, the first thing that has to happen is the owner has to be willing to share the numbers that the business creates with all their people. Right. And that's always a challenge. Huge challenge because people don't want that level of transparency if they're making a lot of money. It's one of the biggest jokes in the world. (laughs) You know, um, I remember I had a a client in the vending business and I was talking about open book management and he was doing the usual pushback with me. Mm -hmm. And he was doing around $7 million a year in sales. So I went out and I pulled in the first person that walked by the door. I said, um, this company's doing $7 million in sales. What do you think the owner is making in profits? <laughs> Three and a half million was his answer. Let me guess. That's what he said. Because <laughs> 50% is what they think that the owners right. are making. Yeah. Well, it was between 40 and 60 is what the number usually comes in at. Right. And I did it with two more people, same thing. So I said to him, I said, Greg, you don't need to hide what you're making. You need to educate the people about what you really make. Right. And he kind of went, blah, 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 blah. he never adopted it, but that was a good example. So that's the first thing we got to get past. You got to be willing to share your numbers. Once you're willing to share your numbers, then it's easy. We put a hurdle rate in place. And a hurdle rate is how much profit does a business have to create before the bonus is payable? Correct. And then we have a bonus pool. Mm-hmm. So that pool is, let's say it's 5%. It makes you bonus eligible. Mm-hmm. And between 5 and 10%, we take 10% of the profits. We put it into a pool. Mm-hmm. We take that pool and we put it aside. And then we say, okay, how do we split this up? Well, then we take a point system. We have every job in the company is worth X amount of points. If you're a customer service person, it's X amount of points. If you're a carpenter, a rough carpenter, X amount of points. If you're a finished carpenter, it'd be a different amount. If you're an electrician or a master electrician or an apprentice, it would be a different level of points. And we add up all the points. Mm-hmm. We divide it by the opponent's pool. And each point has a value. Mm-hmm. And then you just multiply that value by how many points a person gets. And that's their bonus. Mm-hmm. And so do you allocate, uh, um, so if you've got 10 carpenters at the same level, um, are they all getting the same number of points or are they, or is their whole team getting a certain number of points? Each person is on an individual basis. Individual basis. Now you might say a carpenter has been with me for 10 years. Right. We'll get more points than the carpenter with me for one year. Reasonable. Yeah. 
You might say a carpenter with a certain skill level gets more points than a carpenter with another skill level. Mm -hmm. So that sort of goes into, if you go to a big company, they have salary bands. Yep. Those salary bands are based on the skill level of that particular job. Right. I like to see small businesses do the same thing, have salary bands. And do you think that the HR person in charge, if they are large enough to have that person, should be the person who develops that point system or is it the leadership team? Absolutely not. The leadership team should. Okay. Gotcha. So Um, in my experience, most of the time, HR people are incompetent when it comes to numbers. Yeah. Well, I I can't disagree with you on that. Um, What about in what about the leadership team? Do they participate in? the bonus pool with a point system as well. Yes. Um, how do they fairly treat themselves so that they're not overpaying themselves and they're being the, the, the owner of the, the owner or owners of the company are responsible for monitoring that. Okay. This is not the sort of thing where uh, you as an owner get to abdicate all your responsibility and say, it's all your people, whatever you come up with, I'm going to, I'm going to support. Of course. You have to be able to have conversation with potential veto power. And do you think there should be transparency around that point system as to how many yeah. points? Um, so would John Doe what, know what John Smith is worth in terms of points or is yeah, that because, private? Because if you have, if you're using your point system, right. John Doe may not have the skills of George Doe Mm -hmm. and George may have five more points than John Doe and John Doe says, I want those same five points that George has. And I, as a supervisor say, great, here's what you need to learn to get to those points. Right. Have you seen this work where, and seen where there's a lot of uh, debate around uh, how many points someone's getting in terms of a bonus and where they should be at? I mean, this is, I mean, we could expand this conversation to compensation. I mean, I don't, I'm not even aware of how much guys talk about compensation with each other inside, but I'm sure it's all the time. Don't you think? I know it's all the time. I don't think it is. I know it is. Yeah. Okay. I I don't think there's any such thing as secrets for how much people make in the company. Right. Maybe not the C, the C-suite, what they're making. Um, Um, I would say... I also will tell you, I don't think that our employees care what others make. They care what they make and they look at what they make to see if they believe it's fair. Right. Once they believe it's fair, they really don't care all that much what other other folks make, including the owner. Sounds sounds good. Wow. All right. Well, we've covered some interesting subjects here and uh, God, this could go on for a long time. we were talking so much before this. I don't even know how long we've been going, Josh. I don't know. I don't know what time we started. Yeah. So, uh, so what else do we want to cover today that would be valuable? I think for people to hear any any as we start to wrap up thoughts that uh, you think. Well, maybe- there's one thing I think that we haven't covered, which is really a hugely big deal in my in my experience, which is being a values based business. Yes. Hiring as a values based business. Yes. You and um, I agree on this as in core values. Yes. Yeah. Understanding there's a difference between core values and aspirational values. Yes. Core values are th- something that exists all the time. Aspirational values are values you wish would exist. Yeah. You're going to work towards that. Yep. You need a clarifying statement around the values so others know what you mean. 
Mm-hmm. You know, for example, I said simplification. We make it complicated and make it simple. And now you know what I mean when I say the word simplification. Yeah. So um, when you do that and you include your values in your hiring system, in other words, you start hiring from values first before technical skills. Technical skills is only the entry to have the conversation. The decision of whether they're going to work for your company or not must be values-based. All the problems I see in personnel and companies are all around values mismatches. I I 100% agree. And I think uh, for people who want to educate themselves a little bit more on this, um, well, first of all, you could read the chapter in my book that talks about uh, purpose where I get do a pretty deep dive into values. But you could also watch one of Pat Lencioni's videos where he talks about the difference between aspirational values and values uh, that are a permission to play values he talks about also and values that are, you know, alive and well and living in, in the organization, which has been a really important topic. In, uh, in the top grading methodologies and in, in, of hiring. So important that you get this right. I uh, also really love the video. I've played it in many workshops with Tony Shea um, from Zappos, who's uh, Tony passed away a couple of years ago, but he, it was a course that he taught at Stanford Graduate Business School on values and how they came up with their values and uh, how they test uh, job applicants for fit, really fun video to play with your team. So super important that they have this, you know, I I didn't know anything about this, uh, 20 years ago when I started my consulting career and went into a company in San Diego that made sandals and then realized that they were a, uh, these were all, I, I don't know, I think at the time I called them Jesus freaks, but they were all lovers of Jesus. When you went onto their website, it literally took you into like a biblical place. And I, but I realized like this is a real values-based company. And sure. yeah, I mean, of course there were then many other companies that I came to know and love like, oh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which is near and dear, probably your dear home and, and heart. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a sad story about Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, sure. They didn't live their values. Oh, okay. So seems to me that their social mission, they were pretty clear about that. And they lived that. Yes. But the way they treated them, they, they were in the high risk pool for workers' compensation. Ah, nah, safety problems. Yeah. So if you're in the high risk pool, you're not values led. No, you're right. Absolutely. I just assumed that they were values led because they didn't, uh, Ben and Jerry didn't take compensation five times more than they the lowest paid worker. They, they had to go because they wanted to have a woman be their CFO. Yeah. And they couldn't find a woman who would work for five times average salary. Mm. So it went up to 14 or 15 at that point. Ah, okay. So that went so, out the window also. Yeah, and you see what happens to culture. You know, they got bought, and then I guess they went back private again. But uh, oh, no, they're owned by Unilever still. Oh, they still are. Okay, so, Unilever. Unilever's done. Unilever is actually more socially responsible than Ben and Jerry were. Interesting. Well, yeah. as a as a as a corporation, they're not. But with Ben and Jerry's, they have really let them be. You know, they're a benefit corporation. They're a, you're a certified B-Labs benefit corporation. Mm-hmm. So uh, Unilever has done a pretty good job of leaving them alone. Oh, that's good. Well, I defer to Jim Collins, who studies the uh, 
the really great corporations of America for how well they're living their their values and their you know building a, a culture um, around their ideas and principles. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, this has been a really fun 45 or whatever minutes. We'll have to have you come back on the show again. You have a lot of wisdom. Um, and uh, uh, I'm sure that you could share that. Josh, if people want to get a hold of you and uh, how would you like them to contact you and, and for what type of uh, service or, you know, what are you interested well, in? We have two businesses. One's a wealth management business where we help people become financially independent from their businesses. Uh, and the second is that we have our consulting organization where we help people create an economically and personally sustainable business specifically for subcontractors. And the goal is to make yourself sell ready, even if you have no interest in selling your business, because becoming sale ready is really important. In fact, that's the, co- the topics of my first two books. One is called Sustainable and the other one is called The Sale Ready Company. They're both uh, uh parable business parables and their stories and you get to go along with this business family and find out what happens to them and it's a good story i've actually had people come up to me who aren't in business don't own businesses who are friends of mine who have read my second book and said when's the third book coming out uh, well i'll have they to get a copy of happens. those are the only types of business books i like to read these days are fairy tale stories um yeah, or right. fables so that was it. So to find me as easy as jpatrick at yep. stage2planning.com. That's the number two. Or go to www.stage2planning.com or www.sustainablebusiness.co. And you'll see a bunch of orange buttons sitting around making an appointment. Just click on it and I'll talk with you for 20 minutes. It won't cost you a cent. Great. And my team will make sure to get those contact uh, links um, in the show notes. So, and we'll have to have you back. I'll have to read your fables and having you come back and just talk about how to build a sellable business, whether you want to sell it or not, makes a lot of sense. Um, And there are some really clear drivers that you need to put in place for your business to be seller ready. So, awesome. Cool. Jonathan, thanks so much for letting me on today. Josh, thanks for having you. Thanks for joining me. And folks, if you like this, please share this episode with others, subscribe and uh, show, show us some social love on social media. Thanks a lot. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.